Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We are from the, you know the fucking deal by this point. Yeah. But Phil Graves' new record coming very, very soon. Um, and we're here once again to talk about cinema. That we are. We're talking about um, a big new film, sort of. Mm. We've been led to believe it's a big new film. But... Sight and Sound cover three months ago or something. I was the only person in the cinema. Were you actually? No, me and Darrell and Louis were the only people. Ah, in the no, no. Um, where did you see it? View Finchley Road. No, Dream right, Palace man, before yeah, it goes. Um, oh, is it actually? Yeah, man, they're knocking down that shit. I always say to you, the Harrow one down the road is actually the true, the true cine. Favorite cinema. Yeah. Well, it's it is good. the Kiln Cinema in Kilburn High Road is the best cinema in London. Fact. Um, we saw it, uh, Shannon and I, at Kurt's on Bloomsbury, because with these movie films, it's always a good excuse to like go to one of the most expensive cinemas you can. You know, I get um, bored of it. Well, we mix it up and go to other ones, like, sometimes, you know. Yeah. You can go to Mayfair. You can, <laughs> you can go to... <laughs> uh, don't. But, yeah, I won't get into it. But, um, yeah, you can sit in the balcony there as well, so it's quite jokes. That's true. Uh, there, there were people... Um, there were people there when we saw it. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about Censor by Prano Bailey Bond. <laughs> Debut feature. And fits very neatly into a big category of British films, um, the likes of which we kind of started this podcast talking about because we talked about In Fabric on episode 001. Um, Sam, would you care to introduce the plot, themes, Vibes. So Censor is about a young woman that works in a film censoring office in like sort of early 80s Britain, beginning of the Thatcher era. She's played by Neve Algar. Good actor. Yeah, it's a great performance. She's really in every scene in the film sort of is about her journey. Um, she's meant to be sort of traumatised by um, like a childhood event where her sister went missing and in an early scene, her, she meets with her parents who have, like, come from Wales. It's, like, a co-production of, like, the BFI and, like, Film Cymru. Right. They they come and they're like, oh, we've we've got a death certificate for her. And she's like, oh, no, we don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. A lot of the film is about her, like, sort of unravelling the trauma. She sees this film by a director called Frederick North called, what's it called? Don't Go Into the Church, yeah. um, which she feels, like, connects to this. And then the film sort of tracks her sort of journey of discovery um, or sort of descent into madness. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is that is what happens. There's there's interesting stuff going on in this film with the the moral panic about film censorship. Because when you hear anyone talking about this shit now, everyone acts like everyone knew it was fucked up and like really erases any sort of discourse around like film censorship or whatever. Because anyone who works in film is like, oh yeah, it's obviously fucking tragic that like mary whitehouse is trying to ban trying to cut the tree rape scene out of the evil dead or whatever but like in this film is taken to such an interesting extent well the main character is a, a true like moral crusader who's like trying to protect people because she knows something there's like horror in every day and she also knows that the people making these films are fucking nonces or whatever which is an interesting element you know but the film suggests at the end that like the filmmakers are a you know, a community or whatever, and the yeah. censorship is the evil, the censors are the evil ones. I'm not sure I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, this is a film that's made for one... I'm not the one person that this film was made for. 
right? That person is Mark Kermode. And Kim Newman was a producer on this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Kermode, he wrote the cover feature for Sight and Sound. Yeah. Didn't he do? And he talks like he was really in the trenches, like, in this shit. When he was... I've read... He was, like, 19 years old yeah. or something. Like, I've read um, when I was, you know, deputy at the horror magazine, yeah, Fangoria, Fangoria yeah. like, ten times in his yeah. in his prose. Like, <laughs> um, it's a calling card that, um, you know... There's a, there's a piece by Kim Newman in, yeah. in that issue that as well. That piece was brilliant, I thought. Really interesting, because that guy really knows his fucking shit, you know. And it's, he... it's funny you say that, because I feel like both articles track the exact same history. Yeah. A sort of constitutional and social history that talks about... Um, Cannibal Holocaust and... No, nah, a bunch of different laws that were passed. Oh, right, like, yeah, yeah. About, you know, prohibition, um, the Public Order Act... Yeah, so it's called like yeah. in like '94, like all these like Tory, which was about. Is it? I heard Prano Bailey Bond talking about how it was the same piece of legislation that was used to stop raving, which was like a culture she was really into when she was like growing up, especially in like rural Wales or whatever. And it was literally the same piece of legislation that, you know, was banning video nasties. Yeah, which is mad. Yeah. But you know, because then it is you know, but um, for long cultural repression or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of the vibe, isn't it? Um, Thatcher is a character in this film. Not that she's not played by anyone, but she's like a strong presence in the film. Like, you hear her voice. I think hers is like the first voice you hear in the film and stuff like that. Again, pretty bait, if you ask me. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, it bears the hallmarks of the 80s in lots of ways. There are some cool, like, train sequences. <laughs> um, I asked uh, Darrell, our train correspondent, about the train stock. Um, and he said they were largely used in the north. <laughs> um but yeah there's a lot of like brutalism and yeah as you said the sort of ghost of thatcher um sort of permeating every frame do you think it's drawing a link that like is easy to see now with 40 years of hindsight or whatever like sticking it on thatcher whereas if this film was made 10 years ago it wouldn't be as explicitly. I don't even know where I'm going with this. What do you think it would be like more like blaming it on the culture um, and like have a bit more like analysis to it? Maybe I think mm. as opposed to just sticking it on her. I mean, not I'm not defending Thatcher. I'm fucking glad she's dead. Like, you know, I think her. it certainly depicts like moral panic as um, running throughout society and not just being like a top down thing. Yeah. But maybe that's like extremely generous to it. Um, well, I think it definitely says that the moral panic was made up by the right-wing press. Yeah. Explicitly. Yeah, for sure. There's very, like, swarmy paparazzi scenes that are, like, extremely hyperbolic, you'd imagine. Um, I remember Shan saying she thought that was, like, really unbelievable as a sort of narrative device. Because, um, like, they weren't doxing censors or whatever. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting because it wasn't really the thing... It wasn't really the trajectory that I would have expected this sort of story to have, where actually, like, the censors kind of fuck up by letting a film pass that then there was, like, a copycat killing of. Whereas I thought it would sort of suggest more that, like, <laughs> censorship isn't isn't a good thing or whatever. But instead it's suggesting, like, the censors have an immense amount of responsibility and, like, they did actually sort of have blood on their hands. I don't know, that was kind of my reading of the film, which mm. is, like... Yeah, it hasn't... Well, I think that actually does... Yeah, it sort of does 
muddied that analysis, I think. Um, it, its depiction of censorship office is interesting in that respect, actually, like, as a mix of, like, sort of failed academics, like, yeah. and I guess people just trying to do a job and people that have, like, a strong moral conviction about it. Um, <sighs> what did you like about this film? It has quite a few interesting stylistic devices. The The narrative, I thought, was one of the weakest things mm. about it, um, especially the third act, but I think that's quite a common criticism. Um, you didn't like the Beast Man? It was quite jokes-making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, nah, no, specifically how it relates to the, the main character's sort of trajectory for the film. I just struggled to sort of buy it, and I struggled to sort of interpret what it was saying about mental health and violence yeah, and like, yeah. again like, like how it participates in like the social and political critique of the video nasty like because I didn't think it was satirical or sort of ironic I mean I guess the point is the censors do the most violence but like if you introduce like an element of like trauma and like mental health into that then I thought it was like mm, it becomes a bit sort more. of a bit more like problematic in how it was uh, handled totally this film made me think of Midsummer quite a bit I think because of the sort of jump off of like her being like really traumatized from like some shit that happened to her family like years ago or whatever it was just a bit more fucked up I thought like because of all this focus shifting and like perspectivalness where even though Neve Algar's character is in every scene in the film, you're kind of encouraged to think that she's wrong quite a lot. And you see, she's the only one that you see committing any violence in the film. Mm. Mm. I think something, okay, off mic, classically, and I, you did allude to this in the introduction, potentially, also. Um, now nah, nah, it's off mic. We were talking about St. Maud, a film that I enjoyed. And again, like you could say, um, how it handles mental health. And it's sort of intersection with like violence and society yeah. is like a bit ropey. For me, it worked a lot more because it's a sort of transposition of like sort of medieval narrative. Right. And that works really well. Whereas here, I'm not sure how it scans entirely. Yeah, I wish it was more Joker mode as well, man. You're right. <laughs> yeah. um, another film it sort of reminded me of, um, which is like a sort of genre reimagining and a sort of subversion of expectations was a film we spoke about a few episodes ago, uh, Ghosts or Gespenster yeah, by right, Christian okay. Petzold, um, where a, one character is obsessed with like a... An unsolvable mystery. An unsolvable mystery, exactly. Um, and again, like, I guess you can always link this like, back to Hitchcock or whatever, and that's not really the point. We'll talk about that a little bit more with the next film we're going to be talking about. But Ghosts by Christian Petzold, it plays with its genre conventions in a way more interesting way, whereas here it's, like, pretty kitschy. Um, well, quint so quintessentially kitschy, which, again, responds to, like, the, you know, the tropes that it's interrogating all this like Does it? <laughs> but I, I i don't know it was I, yeah unanalytical is definitely the word and i'm sure listener you probably feel like this is extremely unanalytical uh, as well but <laughs> perhaps uh, <laughs> i'm basically done with these movies man with these british like fake giallo movies um when i was 18 love barbarian sound studio love ben wheatley I don't think I'm going to watch those films again. And I can't believe that this is still the palette that like 
it's pretty much the only kind of like British independent film that like catches on, which is so long, man, because I don't really like that sort of stuff anyway. And it's just, I just feel like I'm watching the same movie again. I feel like I'd already seen the film when I started watching it or whatever. I knew it was going to rip off David Lynch at the end of the film because I'm just so inured to that. And it didn't really, I know it said it had certain surprises to me in terms of the portrait of the media, but it's just the same old shite, man, honestly. Like, yeah, the aesthetics really weren't especially pleasing. To the me. only one I really like was R. Have you seen that? Oh, no, but it sounds quite jokes. Yeah, the, that again, it's all in monkey speech. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has like the freaky soundtrack. Like, But again, that was like seven years ago. And like, they're just going to keep making these fucking movies, man. And <laughs> I guess that makes me think of like Prevenge or something by Alice Lowe, where it just very much so fits within that category. Like for me, it was very throwaway. These all have an extremely televisual aesthetic as well, sure. which is, I guess, very much so a symptom of the the cameras and just the sort of aesthetic zeitgeist that I don't know they all went to the same film school where like someone that worked on Holby City teaches a fucking course in cinematography now or something like I don't know this does do some interesting things actually with like shifting aspect ratios you know referring to like pan and scan as like look Emmett is rolling his eyes obviously and it is a bit cheesy using like um, static for s- transitions, not it's so played out, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what? Well, so they should have invented an entirely new mode of transition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but inter- yeah, but the televisualness is interesting because, like, it's the era of television as well. Like, there are televisions in the frame yeah. with Thatcher on them. Yeah. Um, or like the Driller Killer or something like that. But yeah. the televisualness with the casting is. It's so distracting when, like, Lynn from Partridge or, like, Nathan Barley turns up for a cameo in one scene. Like, I don't know, these are professionals and they're good actors. Like, I don't have a problem with that. I'm glad they're getting work. It is slightly distracting. Like, Shan nudged me, like, two minutes into that. Yeah. Or, it's only, a, like, a minute-long scene. But, like, halfway through it, we, like, both looked at each other and were like, oh, it's Lynn. Like, yeah, but it's uh, not like... Where, like, that's like the... what you're thinking about. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. It's not like the 1517 to Paris where, like, that stunt casting just makes it super fucking elevated and, like, intense and, like, a different kind of film or whatever. It's just, like, this kind of arch, vibey, like, you could play a drinking game or whatever. Like, is Superhands going to turn up in this film or whatever? Like, again, I hate to be so. I hate to hold these sorts of films to such a high standard, especially when it's a debut feature made by a woman. But. I was so fucking bored, man. Like, I'm so tired of this shit. It's an 87-minute long film. Yeah, and it dragged to me. And I was I was kind of going along with it with the first 20 minutes because the, the, the most interesting stuff was all in the first 20 minutes. And then it did... When it, start, it starts in the, um, in the office, introduced to that sort of milieu, then you're introduced to the sort of family trauma aspect. Then once it gets into it, but you, when we saw the trailer, you were like, I bet Michael Smiley's only going to be in like one scene of this movie. Or I love Michael Smiley yeah, from back from watching Spaced. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, he's in some of these Ben Wheatley films, um, Kill List, yeah. A Field in England. Um, but yeah, he has a sort of end of hot fuzz moment, doesn't he? It was a good kill. Yeah. It was a good kill. Um, 
and it did it didn't withhold that pleasure that people who like these sorts of films would expect i'd say actually that i don't know it didn't really respond to the sort of traditions of like practical violence that much even the way that moment is represented you're you're showing it afterwards right with like a panning shot that settles on the violence after on the uh, effects of violence afterwards um you you do see a bit at the end but like it's not like um cannibal holocaust where like you're going to be thinking it's not punishing (laughs) like yeah yeah it's not like an experience like it's just a an image it's not like actually what these films that were made by like sickos or artists however you choose to you know approach it were like really going in and you know it's not unbelievable that there were like questionable practices although it tends to come down to like animal cruelty rather than like and presumably you know sexual harassment suites and stuff like that but you know people aren't actually getting murdered and people aren't getting influenced to murder okay the scene when she meets the like girl who's working on the film and she's like, oh, you're early or whatever. Like, do you know what you're doing here or whatever? That was really convincing to me, I thought. That was a really good bit where it's like, these people are just working or whatever. But then it flips it in such a weird way where it's like, it's about this sense of like learning to literally embrace horror. I don't fuck with it, man. And then the ending just straight up didn't make any sense. And like looked exactly like firewalk with me which black mirror or something well yeah i don't even watch that stuff to be honest well well no they're just like the yeah again it it does fall within the same sort of aesthetic and um please mode do something else can someone like rediscover like jack tourneur or something like that because like i don't i don't hate horror films at all i don't hate psychological horror films at all i don't even hate like argento well i kind of do we watched The Beyond recently, which was a video nasty. Mm. That film was wicked, I thought. Like, mm. um, you didn't really respond to it that heavy, did you? You thought it was a bit bait. Yeah, I, I don't have a great relationship with horror films. Although, like, when, yeah, on my journey of film, I've, you know, watched some, like, trashy, you know. like I remember I, you recommended me The Midnight Meat Train when we were, like, 15 or whatever, and I ended up watching it and thought it was really jokes or whatever. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, that's more to um, my friend Bill McAllister's hey, credit, actually. shout out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Who, I think even, like, his aunt or, like, some random family member will, like, give him, like, truly horrible uh, and, like, you know, really silly, um, like, B-to-Z movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, Midnight Meat Train is a classic, actually. I completely agree. Uh, and you know it engages with the lizard people thesis mm-hmm. in the, in a way that more films should hopefully the souvenir too <laughs> will uh, touch on that. Um, I'm really not ready. I'm not even going to watch it though. The like super elevated version of this, which is the forthcoming Edgar Wright last night in Soho. Oh, God, like, yeah, we. I ain't watching that. I'm saying I'm probably going to have to project it as well. But like, I'm just going to fucking turn around or something. They can't, they can't advance it. Like, I feel like I'm watching the same film every single time. The Suspiria remake. Oh, trash. Um, sorry, you asked me, what did I like about this film? Yeah. 
I didn't ask you and I didn't respond. So between, <laughs> between us, do we think we can say some stuff we liked about it? Do you remember the music? I, I don't. It was like drone. It was all like drone stuff, wasn't it? Which is good for the cinema. But I mean... Um, okay, what did, you, what did you like about it? Had a nice can of Guinness in the cinema. Did you like the um, vintage retro logos at the beginning? Hell no, man. No. I liked how the only one that wasn't was the National Lottery one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one started in the mid-90s. Whatever, yeah, so great. You can't, even, you can't even like fake a version of that. The performances. We can say that, can't we? I liked one performance. <laughs> yeah, nah, man. But we're about to talk about a really sick film. I guess to bridge the gap, Barbarian Sound Studio feels like the sort of genesis of this filmmaking movement of like sort of ironic um, films. I'm making a face that says, that's not what irony is. No, but like the aesthetic (laughs) is ironic. It's like deliberately kitschy and (sighs) drab. So thanks for fucking nothing, Peter Strickland. I think you're good at films as well, but like that film is a quasi remake of Blowout which is a quasi-remake of Blow Up by Antonioni. So I guess we've got De Palma to blame as well. I want names and addresses, man. I want... <laughs> so following on from our last episode about films of Robert Altman Mm. uh, we're sort of going to be sticking with New American Cinema for the second half of this episode which is sort of like an early film grades episode now that I think of it Um, hopefully with better audio quality at least (laughs) but we're not talking about one of the nerd ass jocks you know nah 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 we're talking about Blowout by Brian De Palma a film that you wanted to discuss was it after you watched Sensor or before? No it was just before yeah Um, it was the first film screened at the BFI when they reopened and it's the 40th anniversary right now yeah a film for all times Mm. a paranoid political thriller exactly that which is the juice these days Mm. we watched Medium Cool quite recently or probably like a year ago (sighs) yeah I picked it up for Film Club ages ago very comparable films actually and obviously comparable to Censor so in that it's sort of to do with you know people the unsung heroes of cinema yeah well (laughs) film as vocation or whatever and Um, and shitty movies (laughs) yeah uh, John Travolta plays a sound guy um, who at the beginning of the film he's recording like sort of sounds in like a canyon and then he witnesses a car crash rescues a woman when he gets to the hospital he realizes it was sort of a big deal and it merges that the guy driving was like the front runner yeah (laughs) the front runner for the presidential election and then it becomes like a sort of conspiracy thriller where he's trying to uncover what actually happened um using his sort of documentary evidence he can hear like a gunshot on the recording before the tire blows out um so he becomes fixated on this this scene is one of the best scenes i've ever seen where he's recording yeah yeah it's just such a cool look to it you know you've got the owl it's like the satan tango owl you know yeah you know i screenshotted it for the (laughs) the owl owl appreciation post yeah and i guess it's a very hitchcockian moment i've seen it compared to like the the cornfield scene in North by Northwest, for example, where it's just an epic 
iconic moment but also where the camera knows so much more than the characters because you see what actually happened and then it's about sort of like rediscovering or like gathering evidence for it haven't seen loads of these classic Brian De Palma films but I have seen Sisters and this film shares with that these of uh, split screen mm. split diopters as well and um, this has cinematography by Vilmos Zygmunt um, we spoke about his work on Images, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and The Long Goodbye yeah. on the Altman episode. Okay. And yeah, the camera's just going crazy here. But that shot, that scene rather, is mainly about the editing, I would say. Yeah, I agree. Um, rather than the cinematography. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like a, a scene that makes you hold your breath. Um, the one before it is brilliant and as you observed off mic, the most like the film we were just talking about, Censor, because we spend the first two minutes of this film watching like a B-movie slasher yeah, um, while they're like assessing the sound mix. But um, you don't know you're like watching it in that capacity until it cuts away or whatever. This is one of the most epic jokes, like, because <laughs> I was fully fucking blindsided by it. I'd never seen the film before. I knew it was a classic. I had the DVD for years and like was really excited to watch it. But yeah, I was so disturbed by the slasher because I thought this was going to be like, oh wow, De Palma's really going crazy on this one. Like he's really taken it to some other like menacing level and I wasn't really prepared for it. Um, thinking it was going to be like a political thriller and then you're watching a sort of first person slasher movie where like all the women are naked and like it was so intense and fucked up but then culminates with like a screaming woman but like she's really bad at screaming right this is kind of the jump off of the plot which is so Mm. jokes and then they're like watching it and they're like oh that was rubbish like we need to get someone else to scream need to record some good screams or whatever. yeah spoiler alert they find i think the last line of the film is now that's a good scream or whatever <laughs> um just on the point of violence then and like the sort of slasheriness there is a interesting aspect of this film with like it's not about that it is more like a political thriller rather than a slasher film it's a proper simpson style plot yeah. right yeah but john lithgow plays like a um sort of CIA operative that's like gone rogue and is like um, a sort of serial killer as well so it does sort of or like he uses serial killings as a sort of veneer for political operations so it does sort of conflate you know political violence with like the sphere that it's looking at in the same way as censor but sorry it's a really convoluted point. Interesting Um, that that really ties into like anti-paranoia which is I guess a term coined by Thomas Pynchon and Gravity's Rainbow, where like everything bad that happens could be a political conspiracy made up mm. by spies. And in this film, yeah, there's like sex killings, the CIA like make up a guy. But when he goes to the, when John Travolta's character goes to the cops, um, the cop is obviously like, oh, wait, so it's a cons- You're telling me it's a conspiracy? You're telling me there are some communists around the corner, a couple of ayatollahs around the corner? Like, <laughs> so yeah, it very much like taps into that. I mean, it's a post-Watergate was like 10 years before or something, but it's very much still the same. I read a great quote from De Palma about Watergate where he's like, why are people going crazy? But this is concocted by the media. People have been doing this shit like <laughs> since like sound recording was invented, but like, oh, suddenly because Nixon bugged a room, like he's the big bad guy now. Like, And he's a, he's a leftist. I mean, he's a jaded leftist. This is kind of the way that... A lot of the scholarship sends him that way, for sure. Definitely. I mean, he's also a mad capitalist. Well, you get the impression watching the... Bound back film that he's just a capitalist because like most of that film is him talking about like 
winning arguments with producers and like, oh, this film actually made loads of money or whatever. But I really rate Brian De Palma more and more as I, I mean, I used to love The Untouchables and Mission Impossible yeah. and Scarface when I was like a teenager. I've never seen Scarface. I've seen it, The Untouchables, so. Yeah. All right. Sisters is the, the like yeah. big, like sort of early frame of reference that I have. Reading more about his work, there are some big standouts that I really need to get involved with. Yeah. I think we'll keep doing it one at a time, though. I'm so down, man. <laughs> Honestly, like, they always hit to me. I mean, I don't really want to watch Domino. That looks pretty bad, but I will watch it. I really want to watch Redacted. <laughs> you know, it's like, it looks really interesting, I think. And again, it's sort of a similar premise, right, to this film, where it's about evidence and about, like, scrubbing of tapes. The scene in this film where, like, John Travolta comes home and realizes all his tapes have been erased. It's so deep, man. Well, the sound, I think it relates to the sound design as well, because that has like a sort of throbbing underbelly to that scene, which is like really disconcerting. Um, but again, I guess it sort of relates to the technology that he has around him and like the sound of a wiped tape or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But in general, I mean, it is a film about a sound designer and the sound is like, a real indelible aspect of this film in that first sequence that you said you found like super jarring mainly because of your expectations about what you know what it would be like or whatever and also find um, like misogynist slasher films like really icky yeah 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 but the sound design in that film is like so heightened there are like three four five audio tracks there are like two bits of music going at full volume and it's like everything's pushed up to the top it's a crazy oral experience like um and again it maintains that's like a studio scene or whatever where they're like you know it's very reflective about like how it's using sound there but it's there throughout the film in like a crazy striking way it's a film about you know the juncture of sound and image i think like against all these like jalo films that like strickland was really influenced by and like making a film about where all the sound was Foley, right, mm. in those sorts of films, that wasn't the tradition in America. And, like, actually, you know, mics were better and ADR wasn't just, like, how they did everything. Mm, mm, mm. Which is really important for, like, the the assassination sequence or whatever. Or the non assassination like... Yeah. I mean, also, one thing I really appreciate about this film is that it doesn't, like, mix up the politics whatsoever. Like, there's no potential for this not to be psyop summer man you know yeah like, for sure it's absolutely assured in that which is something that you'd never get something like that these days you know it would always be so like both sides these days and like you'd be questioning john travolta's like mental capacity or whatever whereas like you have the truth from the jump right mm. so it's just mm. heartbreaking to see all this shit happening to this guy you know absolutely but then again you get is it robin word being like you know the core of the film is like this character is like literally just exploiting a woman like um right so of course and De Palma's like men are always like i was listening to adam Neyman talking about this film great writer De Palma's great for like writing the most like cucked like fucking shit characters for like leading men especially john travolta like post Grease and Saturday Night Fever or whatever. And this film was a massive flop. Even though it's one of the most epic American films, you know. There's so much red, white and blue. I mean, yeah, oh my God. Yeah, I was just about to say, the Demi one is like... So it's set in Philadelphia, right? And it's like Liberty Day. So it's like tapping into all this like pageantry and symbolism um, and like history and inverted 
of course yeah. yeah you know the the climax is like that like sort of parade and um you know what's happening behind it like just out of the view of like all the punters or whatever so yeah and it's like national treasure yeah and you also compared it to nashville um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nashville but um <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to fucking miss this, you know, the sense of irony or, yeah. that is trying to really com- compound at the end. Um, and it's fine, because, like, Goddard does this shit about America all the time, right? Even in, like, Pierre Odafu or whatever, with that, like, Vietnam sequence. But Americans, they never go so hard, man. Like, this is another thing I really appreciate about De Palma. Sorry, I think it's the same thing I said I appreciate about the farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I like how this film, you know, his sisters, which we watched about a year ago, is straight Hitchcock ripoff. Like, straight up. And I said to you earlier, what film is this? Cat in. Well, it definitely is. Yeah. yeah. Especially in its treatment of women. I think that's the core thing. It's more of a sort of thematic response. But that's, I guess, sort of what I was trying to say, maybe, when I compared Ghosts to Censor. Mm. Obviously, like, completely different films, but, like, just in terms of, like, how you respond to, like, the history of genre, there are, like, so many ways to do it. And here, like, it's a synthesis rather than, like, a parody or whatever. Yeah, um, sure. But then again, a lot of people would say that, you know... <sighs> Christian Petzold's films are sort of parodies of these films. So maybe it's not the, the, Masterfully best, sold, the, yeah. the best point. but um, That Petzold guy is so good, isn't he? Yeah, I'm still thinking about these films. Guys, if you didn't listen to that episode and you haven't seen any of these films, I don't know. I think about these films like literally all the time. Um, but sorry, we're talking about Blowout. <laughs> A really expressive, not muted film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> End with fireworks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Those like, damn fireworks, man. They ruined the whole fucking thing. The, the fireworks were a psyop, you know. Yeah. Man, I love John Travolta's backstory in this. That scene is sensational. Oh, my God. His, like, guilt yeah. story or whatever. Because he got a cop killed. Oh, no. Yeah, when he was like, <laughs> you're telling me you were a cop? <laughs> <sighs> fate uh, flashback like <laughs> it's a great flashback it's a yeah. great thing to put in this movie I think because again it's he takes this shit so seriously man like and he doesn't have a problem with like portraying things that he hates or whatever yeah that's an important point to make like representation is not endorsement yeah you know this it's is... easy to if you don't like a film for whatever reason that deals with a subject that you, like, don't like. It's easy to conflate it, but, like, it's not the... I think, yeah, I think it's pretty unmistakable. But then Armin Wai loves this shit. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sending that article, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which is mad. Yeah, but it's because he's like, oh, Brian De Palma comes from, like, a rich tradition of liberal humanism or whatever, and it's like... He does! (laughs) Yeah, I'm into it. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, but he does lo- like it's such an ironic film in a way that like again not in the way that Censor and Barbarian Sound Studio are like pastiches I'd say this film has like an extremely concrete resolution yeah. whereas those films um, deal with like disintegration disintegration here is like in the middle right? and then like there's a resolution which makes it like really ironic. 
Very good point, man. Whereas in those films, it's all about the descent. This is more like a Nike tick or something like that. <laughs> um, again, what's the reward? Is that he gets to finish his fucking... He gets to scream or whatever. Yeah. And like this is another mad episode in his life where like there could be just another story to tell. You know? Yeah. Because he gets off pretty scot-free. Oh, entirely. Yeah. Which is, you know, there's not the the transference of guilt thing that is like what all the Hitchcock films are about doesn't go down at all, you know. He commits a violent act. Yeah. Uh, and and has like no, you know, as just like a back at work. Like it's not even like, on, you just get like a newsreel being like, oh, and, you know, it appears that this happened. Um, <laughs> the same thing actually happens at the end of Shortcuts as well, actually. Okay. Um, where like, you know, a descent into violence. It's not a descent into violence here. It's like, I guess, sort of vindicated or whatever. But um, it's just like a little like newscast, like makes you sort of rethink what you've seen and like how, you know, repercussions work. <laughs> um. I loved the, this also, this film was also a bit joker mode, which was cool because it had the whole like, you're going to be broadcast. You're, you know, everyone's going to believe you. Like you're going to be a star. Like Definitely. It seems like every 70s American film has to have like, a news reporter character. Sure. Um, yeah, it's fine. I wonder why they were so, you know. <laughs> this is literally an 80s film as well. But I guess the whole point is to be like, this is a continuum and like... It's the last film of the know, 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exact. That is literally exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best film I've seen this year. The Hands Down, I think. Of all the films we talked about on this podcast, like I haven't been so blown away. And I really don't like Blow Up by Antonioni. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I picked it up in chat shop yeah. after like walking for ages. I think I was in like acting or something. Like, cool. I don't know how I ended up there. Um, well, this film doesn't have fucking Janet Street Porter in it, which is calm, you know, but... Um, is she in it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. Man, yeah. But, I, okay, far be it from me to prescribe what is and what isn't misogynist, but I would say Antonioni definitely on one side of the Venn diagram and Brian De Palma just takes it seriously. There's a brilliant footnote in one of the articles that I read about um, about De Palma's work, where it's like talking about his um, the political nature of his work and how that intersects with um, you know feminist theory. Yeah. And uh, it's just like I'm not saying that De Palma is a feminist. Of course he's not. And it's like hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I literally don't know. Okay, yeah. like, Interesting. <laughs> I think he's more of a feminist than Alfred Hitchcock. I think he slightly advances that. But I think he also probably had problems with second wave feminism. Because he, there's a classic quote where he says, like, I want to see people protesting against, like, the pornography industry and General Motors, like, on the same day. Which you just never hear people talking about. And these days, you certainly wouldn't. Like, if he was to make a film about OnlyFans, it would probably be really interesting and no one will watch it. But, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like... He takes his. He takes it fucking seriously, man. I am going to make you do the private chat PVT chat episode, <laughs> and then you can see how you feel about what you just said. <laughs> Is that a materialist critique of the sex work industry? I think, like all of these American films, it's like extremely muddy. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think it. Okay. I think it is. Yeah, that's sort of exactly what it is. I guess it's more about addiction, though. Zola, I don't think it was, but I thought it was great. It was a great movie. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to Film Grace. Yeah, um, this has definitely been a shorter one, but 
I think it was a nice little diptych of films to discuss. I'm glad we got to talk about them. Yeah. You never want to talk about new films. It's true. So, uh... Yeah, but look what happens when... <laughs> <laughs> you want me to talk about people just do nothing? That was okay. Was it sort of jokes or... It had jokes moments. I just This shit just doesn't translate. It, they, these films come out on the same weekend every year. Did it look like censor when it wasn't doing the like Jallo stuff? No, it looked like an episode of People Just Do Nothing, but the characters were like 60 feet tall or whatever. It was the same vibes. They didn't like fuck up anything about the TV show. And I love the TV show. I think it means a lot to me. Although it's harder to take the spirit behind it as a movie because as a movie with like an actual budget and stuff like that. It's not exactly democratic. It's made by, you know, the dude who writes songs for Emily Sande and stuff about like fledgling music people or whatever when he actually is Keith Chegwin's son and he's like been haps his whole life or whatever and he's kind of taking the piss out of people who do take music seriously which i really object to but it's jokes haven't seen it sort of like tv show uh but haven't seen the whole thing yeah. um i feel like that they're ten a penny those like bbc sort of documentary mockumentary things it's fine yeah everything's a mockumentary now and the last taboo would be to like make a straight <laughs> <laughs> dramatic comedy or whatever yeah. <laughs> This country film next year. I don't know if it's happening. It's gonna happen. It's uh, obviously gonna happen at some point, happen. isn't it? Daisy May Cooper was in David Copperfield. Yeah, which I loved. I thought it was so good. Yeah, I really liked it. But again, that's like a very okay. That this is a whole other debate, dude. Because we've been talking about like sort of hegemonic form of British, yeah, independent scare quotes yeah. cinema. When obviously they're all like, you know, like funded shit by, you know, these various... they funded that hard. Well... You get like 600 grand or something like that. They're funded by like institute. They they have... We're talking about films that have like institutional backing, right? But you can say that about fucking Petzold or whatever as well, you know? Yeah, sorry. Why? why, What was the point? David Copperfield. Oh, yeah. Uh, so convoluted yeah that's I can't a, believe we're giving the people this shit for free man yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that 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 is a whole other kettle. <laughs> that is a whole other kettle of fish though because that is like a sort of heritage film even if it has like you know that just has its whole other story you know compared to these like debut like sort of pastiche I think Ianucci is a punk as well but like yeah. I thought it was a really good time I've been Emmett. I've been Sam. See you soon. We've got loads of good shit coming up. Thanks for listening. Have a good weekend.